Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, the Department of Classics, and the Society of Fellows in Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Anton Professor of the Latin Language and Literature James Zetzel's book, Critics, Compilers, and Commentators, An Introduction to Roman Philology, 200 BCE to 800 CE. First, we'll hear James speaking about his book at the panel, and then I'll bring you my interview with Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia and Anne Whitney Olin, Professor of English at Barnard College, Christopher Baswell. Fergus Millar is right, not necessarily about the books being interesting, but about the texts being uninteresting. And that was, let me just start from the origins of this book, uh, first recently and then long ago. It has a very practical origin, which is that many people who are otherwise quite learned about Latin literature or the ancient world do not know anything about these texts. And I get stray questions from friends. Who is the provost who wrote on Virgil? Because uh, there are seven of them. Um, and most people need them in some way or another, directly or indirectly, and can't find them. So the origin of this book was the second half of it, which is simply the bibliography, identifying all of these strange creatures. And that is where I started writing it, to find out who they were myself. And that was something of a shock, because there are so many of them. I lost count. But simply, the basic collection of Latin grammarians itemizes 103 different authors within it. And for Eleanor Dickey's wonderful book on Greek scholarship, to which this was meant to be parallel, there are 10. Uh, There's simply a huge amount of stuff. The importance of these texts is not that they are exciting reading, but that they, one of the, the main importance is that they preserve one or another, or many of them, fragments of early Roman literature, up to particularly the reign of Augustus. And I simply emphasize this because for the nature of Latin literature as it survives to us is so different from the nature of Greek literature. That is, we have only fragments from the beginning. They are fragments not, ex- not surviving on papyrus, as in Greek, but surviving in quotations. And the sources of these quotations are these texts that I was writing about. For me, in, I started working on this uh, in some respect by reading Aulus Gellius when I was a senior in college. And there are... Joe Howley knows this text better than I do. But there are some remarkable chapters there about the early history of Roman literature and about manuscripts, forgeries, uh, autographs. And these puzzled me then. And for the, for the rest, I took the year after that, uh, I was in London and went to Arnaldo Momigliano's seminar on the history of classical scholarship. And that hooked me. I have always found that the history of scholarship is probably more interesting. Scholarship about the history of scholarship is much more interesting than scholarship about the texts about which the scholarship is written. There is a long chain of transmission 
both of learning, uh, of intellectual life, and of texts themselves that descends from antiquity or ascends to antiquity. And if you are going to try to understand a text, the Roman texts, particularly fragmentary ones, in a historical context, you need to know how people use these texts in the 2,000 years that separate us from them. And I've only dealt with about 800 of those years. So that is what started me on this. How do we know what we know about the ancient world? I originally started working long ago for my dissertation on the history of textual criticism. How did ancient readers talk about problems of a text? And then it broadens out to the whole nature of the study of words or language in antiquity. And I then discovered while I was writing this that there is no clear, I should have known it before, there is no clear end to antiquity. And so I decided to try to get through the wonderful, strange writings of Irish grammarians in the 7th and 8th centuries and stop with the Carolingians where things get organized and interesting again. The real problem about writing this book, I should say, is how do you make a book about very boring texts interesting. And that is not a simple matter. Partly, I tried to be somewhat colloquial in the writing, but partly I separated it into two parts. One of them meant to be interesting, the other part meant to be useful. And the point was, my point, was to put philology into the context of other areas of intellectual life. That is, you can't talk about how people correct, read, texts, language, without looking at the relationships to law or poetry or rhetoric. The second thing was to emphasize the great difference between normative philology and descriptive philology. Normative philology being what we do in Latin 101. You lie to your students. You simplify. You tell them what is right, even if it isn't necessarily all the time. Descriptive philology is pulling out all of the places where we are uncertain and talking about them. And both of these survive from antiquity. We have elementary grammars, and we have advanced grammars. We have glossaries for 10-year-olds, and we have glossaries for scholars. So you have to look at the whole context of this. And the third thing that interested me was to try to talk about the continuities and the discontinuities in our knowledge of scholarship as it descends down to the 8th or ninth century, which meant talking about the geography of books as well as the texts they contain. Again, the contrast with Greece was something that I found very important. All of our knowledge of Greek literature comes from through the medieval period from one place, Constantinople. It's an extremely narrow tradition. And it comes from one other place, Egypt, through the papyri. The Roman tradition is all over the map, quite literally, from in what I was talking about, Constantinople to Spain to Britain. And the second is the continuity or discontinuity between the classical world and the Christian world. We would not have any of these texts. We would not have most of Latin literature if the Western church had not decided to make Latin its official language 
contrary to the way the Greek, the Eastern Church has local languages and local churches. And the third was that this involves a change from teaching Latin speakers or writing for Latin speakers about their own language and literature to teaching non-Latin speakers about Latin literature, as we do. But in this case, it's the Celts, the Franks, and all of those other nice people who settled in the empire uh, and are responsible themselves for preserving it. So anyway, I think I will stop talking there. These are the kinds of problems that interested me, and I hope they interest somebody else here. Now we'll hear my interview with Columbia and Barnard professor Christopher Baswell. I'm here with Christopher Baswell, Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University and also Professor of English at Barnard College. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Pleasure. So I would like to start by um, talking about a remark that you opened your mm -hmm. comments at the panel with, which was how James's book had made you rethink the geography of books and the geography mm -hmm. of Latinity as well. And I was wondering if you could say a bit about this, what exactly you came to think about, and how the book encouraged you to do so. Well, in a couple of ways. Uh, and partly it's just him bringing things back to our attention that we have this vague knowledge of, although he taught me a lot more about this. So one might start actually sort of right at the end of Latin culture in the 19th, and I believe even into the early 20th century, and remember how much Latin was the language that now I suppose English has mm -hmm. come to be. It's the, it's the, it was the international language of diplomacy and of scholarship. Um, I started my study of classics, uh, which is where I began my academic study, uh, at Oberlin College in the 1970s, and I had as a Latin and Greek professor the man who wrote the last doctoral dissertation in Latin at Harvard University. <laughs> Even though he was writing on Greek comedy, oh. <laughs> he still had to write his dissertation in Latin. He was the very, very last, and I think was seen as a bit arcane even in his own day. Mm -hmm. But that's how universal Latin was thought as being. In the, um, in the era of the Raj, when, when, Ing when India was you know, part of the, of the British Empire, the exam to get a colonial administrative post, which was a real way of lower and middle class educated men to climb at that time, mm -hmm. was an, a Latin exam. So the, you know, the Latinity is a kind of both universal language and gatekeeping language mm -hmm. uh, was widespread in ways we tend to forget now that the study of classics is seen as arcane to a degree. It was certainly true in the Middle Ages um, and, and late antiquity. But we, at the same time, we tend, again, I think, because we've lost a little bit of that, just that immediate sense of Latin as a universal tongue, um, we tend to think of Latin very much as an expression of Rome or the Roman Empire. And in a number of ways, it was inevitably, therefore, because it was a language of the Roman Empire, it was inevitably um, a geographically broad language. The empire stretched from Great Britain, really, to well into what we call the Middle East today. Mm -hmm. So that gets you that far. But it continued to be, and I think e even in that era when, when Rome was the center of world power, and where 
Rome was the, the core of what we now call Latin literature, this very narrow, highly selected body of canonical Latin literature, was being written in or around Rome or with reference to Rome. That's all very true. At the same time, uh, we need to remember that, that Rome saw itself as in some ways provincial, that you, that lots of Roman writers went off to Greece to study uh, with, the, you know, with the remains of the Aristotelian Academy. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and, and so it, even at, at the high point of Rome, it was, it was, a, it was only one core among other cores, and it recognized other cores, that you, you did go to, uh, to, to Athens or to other centers in Greece for certain kinds of philosophical and scientific education. Um, this became even, the, the, the kind of stretching of Latin became even more the case in late antiquity. And the one particular example I was thinking of, and I hadn't known this at all until I read Zetzel's book, is that the single, yes, I think it's fair to say, the single most influential grammar writer of late antiquity, and hence for the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, was this man variously pronounced Priscian or Priscian. Right. And Priscian is flourished around 500. Um, he, however, and, and was almost immediately, I think, recognized as a, a central what teacher and uh, codifier of Latin grammar. Mm -hmm. okay. But he was born and had his earliest education in Northwest Africa, in the Roman province of Mauritania, what's now more or less Algeria. He then went and taught Latin, not at Rome, but in Constantinople, because by his time, the empire was splitting in two. So he was speaking to a, at least partly an audience for whom Latin wasn't a first language, even though it was probably a very, very early language at the administrative level. Uh, so he was teaching there, uh, and his his institutes his what institutions of grammar institutiones grammaticales grammaticae um, was copied in late antiquity. So we have probably the one manuscript through it through which it descends was signed as having been copied not long after that. I think five twenty three or five twenty four. Mm. And then it almost dries up, and it's rediscovered in the 800s, no, the, the late 700s, right? the 8th century AD, way up in northern England, in York, by Alcuin of York. It goes with Alcuin over to the continent. So Latinity had really, what we think of as high classicizing Latinity, was in good part maybe even largely surviving in the British Isles in the very early, early Middle Ages. Um, it goes back to the continent because there's a whole world of Latin-speaking, Latin-writing clerics who go over to the continent and participate either in the first conversion of continental people to Christianity or the reconversion of continental people to Christianity. And they bring their their handwriting with them. They bring a certain kinds of theological and doctrinal traditions with them, and they bring their Latin books. And Prussian comes down to us through that. Prussian now there's probably more medieval and Renaissance manuscript copies of Prussian than of anybody else. So we're talking about a, a, a geography that 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 in which Rome is almost an absent middle 
by late antiquity, right? You go from Mauritania to Constantinople, your book goes up to probably Ireland before England. So uh, Alcuin and other people up in the north of England had lots of contact with, with Irish Latin learning. And then it comes back to the continent and, and spreads all over the place. So it's just a very, you know, we're really talking about um, all of Europe and into the Middle East, all participating in the, the, in a way, the creation of what we now call classical Latin. How do you create a classical, better to say, a less changing language, a more stable language? Well, you do it by writing a grammar book. Mm -hmm. Until you do that, language is very, very much more fluid, even if there was a, a certain common style and common grammar among the, what we might think of as the, you know, the classical Latin writers of the what, late century before the Common Era and the first two centuries of the Common Era. Mm -hmm. um, there's, uh, the, that, that's just the kind of what, you know, the tip of the iceberg of a much more fluid spoken language about which we know relatively little except through things like graffiti some surviving, things like that. Yeah. So how do you stabilize it? How do you make a classical language? You write a grammar book, and uh, Priscian is the person who, or one of the very first who does that, but that, that, that classicism itself focused to some degree on Rome is written way out at the, at the geographical margins hmm. outside it. It's fascinating. I want to return to something that you said earlier about the formation of a canon mm -hmm. and how this um, what we think of as classical Latin literature is now like a, a highly selected mm -hmm. thing. Um, is it uh, speaking at all with what Priskin is doing in codifying the Latin language in his grammar? <laughs> Certainly it is linked to what learned literary activity of late antiquity. So another name that comes up with Priskin and who sometimes circulates with Priscian is this Virgil commentator, Servius. Mm -hmm. now, from around the same period, uh, and um, Servius uh, is a, a distinguished teacher. He shows up uh, as a quasi-fictional character in the... The text is going to come to me just a second now. Commentary on the Dream of Scipio by... Macrobius. Thank you, Macrobius. <laughs> uh, Macrobius also wrote a much longer work that was more important in late antiquity called the Saturnalia. And although chronologically it doesn't work, he brings Servius into that scene. Um, so he's important that way. He was clearly an important teacher. His commentary spreads all over the place. By the period I work with, say, the the classical tradition of the 11th through the 14th century, mm -hmm. um, it's almost impossible to encounter Virgil not through Servius. Mm -hmm. That is, you just can't find a manuscript that doesn't have Servius or selections from in the margin. Anyway, so a very important figure. Um, but among, but, but Servius is also dealing with a, a, presumably an audience that is either a little younger than prior commentators did, or not quite as learned. Uh, and he seems to be grappling with a, uh, a rather amorphous but much bigger commentary of a generation or a couple of generations before his time, mm -hmm. which we now call 
we, alas, have several names for it, adding to the confusion, sometimes called Servius Auctus, Servius with additions, or Servius Danielis for the person who first published parts of, of this commentary. So we, we, have this, we have little signs of a far bigger cloud of commentary that Servius is selecting from. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you start to create a kind of accessible canon for the future. And so uh, Servius cites fewer poets than the, what we know of that prior commentary, more in Latin, less in Greek, so the prior commentary seems to have cited a lot more Greek. Um, and so it, partly the creation of canon is a, a, is a measure of practicality. You're into a, getting into a culture that knows a certain literature as, as something inherited from the past, not part of an ambient culture, mm -hmm. and that has to select from it uh, and, and create that sort of new classical. You know, what is the classical? Um, and so somebody like Servius is really serving to do that. When, when texts move from general culture or other kinds of works of art from general culture into a setting of the classroom, you get a kind of extraction from it. And Servius is a, a, a key figure in that. Uh, now he does cite a lot of stuff we don't have anymore. So another, another thing that Servius does for, actually for scholarship, still gets dipped into today is a lot of, of Latin, earlier Latin writers in particular, whom we know only by name or barely by anything beyond name, the few lines or the sometimes extensive lines we have of them surviving isn't through any copy of their own work, but because Servius quotes them. Hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot of these really early, you know, kind of second century before Common Era, even third century before Common Era, Latin writers we only know because Servius and a couple of other commentators quote them. Um, uh, but I think Servius is a major agent in that creation of canon, and then other teachers like him. And that's something that doesn't, again, it's a tradition that does not end with Servius. So in my comments, I also mentioned these uh, great editions, uh, single book editions of Virgil's Aeneid by R.G. Austin. It was done in the 1950s, between about 1954 and maybe the early 1960s. He didn't do every book, but I think he did about a half a dozen of the books. And he says himself, he Austin says, well, you know, here I was a, a teacher in the post-war era, and it seemed to me that we needed another kind of edition of Virgil for a new time because students don't know Greek anymore, People were complaining about that back in the sixth century AD, but mm. you know, but it's true. People didn't know Latin, know Greek anymore, and so I thought I'd try to do that. We think of Austin as being an incredibly learned and even slightly arcane editor today, but that's you know we have another fifty years, sixty, now, on him. Anyway, he writes a very learned commentary. He often cites Servius, mm -hmm. so he in the nineteen fifties is reaching back to the five hundreds. But he also occasionally, and this is very interesting, in trying to sort of illustrate or make analogies with some poetic effect of Virgil's, he will cite instead an English language Renaissance poet or 19th century poet. Tennyson and the Renaissance were his two big bell beats. And what it seems to me, one thing that's happening there is yet another gesture of establishing a new classicism. Mm. That, that the new classicism that I'm gonna to propose to university students of the 20th century 
is going to be a classicism drawn from our past, which is English language. Okay. You'll still read Virgil, that'll still be a piece of it, but the, the, the comparisons I can propose, the, um, the effects I can try to what, intimate to you are going to come through your active language, English, uh, but still your active language as filtered through um, uh, our own antiquity, right? So Sydney and Spencer and Shakespeare, that's going to be our antiquity now. That's the new canon of classicism. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he almost never cites poets of the 20th century. Uh, you know, some, as I said, earlier 19th century poets. Um, but he's kind of like Servius, creating a new canon. Um, in this new setting of education for a new kind of audience. Right, I wanna um, talk a little bit about this idea of education, which, and to touch mm -hmm. on something else that you remarked on at the panel, which was these two differing approaches to thinking about education and scholarship that you found throughout mm -hmm. James's book. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, and I'm gonna quote you, yeah. the quote, ambitions of ethical example and moral foundation and quote of some of some thinkers, and you mentioned Varro, for example. Yep. And on the other, the quote gritty work of moral exegesis and limited intertextuality, end quote, especially with regards to Servius. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about, well, first, um, how you see these two lines of thinking appearing and interacting in the book, and also speak more about how you see see them linking James's book to later periods, as we've been touching on. Sure. Sure. Well, again, I mean, I just, I learned so much. I'm supposed to know this field, by the way. I'm supposed <laughs> to actually to be in command of this stuff. And uh, boy, Professor Zetzel taught me a lot. So I didn't know that Varro quote, for instance, um, uh, until I read it in the book. And I, I knew my Servius, but he taught me a very, very great deal else. Um, and and, and these, these two trajectories, they don't necessarily conflict with one another. Mm -hmm. um, although I might say that at times that need for the gritty detail challenges the, the bigger, bolder claims for literary study and moral character, I guess. Mm -hmm. right? Now a somewhat abandoned concept, I think. And just, uh, I'd say one of the great challenges of literary study today is to what find some new definition of what makes us worthwhile mm -hmm. and so there were these you know going going back to high antiquity certainly through the the, the great writers of the renaissance so i i also quote this great great renaissance humanist probably the greatest of the latin educators of italian humanism guarino mm -hmm. uh, guarino da verona so from verona but who spent most of his career establishing a school at Ferrara. Mm -hmm. uh, and he makes an almost identical claim that literary study, um, you know, can sort of raises the ethical standard, creates a kind of full man, very gendered notion, by the way. We're talking about mm -hmm. education of public men, you know, and by public men. Uh, it, 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 most of that period. I think probably still the case when Austin is writing in the 1950s. Um, so on the one hand, we make you know, these big claims and just where the, where, what the contemporary claim is, I think is not 
so clear. Um, I'd say on the kind of softer edge of contemporary claims for, um, for literary study is some kind of development of empathy. That's kind of the, I don't think we now much make claims that study of, of, you know, in quotation marks, great literature will make you a better man or a better woman or a more ethical, more morally, what, upstanding figure or a better public person, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, though I don't think ever people thought that reading Catullus or Propertius was going to make you a better public person. Maybe Virgil. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, um, you know, I, I think we make a very vague claim these days that, that reading a lot of literature kind of opens you up to more worlds, uh, ex invites you to explore more worlds, and maybe gives you a kind of broader sensitivity and empathy with worlds not your own. Um, that would be one claim. The other claim that I think actually even the ancient grammarians would agree with is that careful study, informed critical study of language helps you avoid getting cheated by language or tricked by language. Mm -hmm. So the whole, the, the big message of this vague term from the 1970s deconstruction is that we will show you how language, how what you think of as individual thought has, always, has already been largely preformed in the language, and that preformed quality of language is going to affect the ways that you are able to think, but also the ways that people are able, through rhetoric and other uh, aspects of language, to put one over on you. Mm -hmm. um, and that maybe literary study helps you be at least alert to the, the built-in manipulative qualities of language. Mm -hmm. Now that's maybe what we can claim today. That I think there was there, as I said, there were bolder claims of ethical benefit uh, in from from antiquity right through the Renaissance, and I would say until the what late nineteenth century, even the mid twentieth century. So that was one. That's one big tradition, one big sort of claim for literature is somehow making you a better person or at least a more clear-headed person. Now, on the other hand, there's that tradition that does say what I do in a classroom with Chaucer, which is say, well, let, let's work out first where the subject here is and whether this is past tense or present tense. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, did you notice this particular piece of visual imagery and you know what's behind the metaphor of the cart before the horse, something like that. So be, and to a very great extent, to a greater extent, I think, than we really like to acknowledge, that's the kind of day-by-day -day work of education, of getting in and saying, well, let's make sure we actually understand what it's saying before we do the big claims. Um, and you, you certainly see this back to Guarino in the work of Guarino da Verona, who will write letters to other humanists and letters to patrons about what, what his education can, can deliver. Right. I can deliver a better man. We're going to make a man as great as the great classical figures that we're now studying. And then you actually get the notes that his students wrote in the classroom. Mm -hmm. right? And we have those because we have some of the manuscripts. So I have a manuscript of, a, of an Englishman who goes off to Ferrara to study Virgil, taking an English copy of the Aeneid with him. Right? Oh. And writing down, he learns how to write humanist minuscule. 
So in the margins, you see this guy's handwriting. So he's there in the class of either Guarino or one of his TAs. Um, and he's writing it down. What's he writing down? Well, a lot of it is Servius. Right. Um, and a lot of it is equally just nitty-gritty grammatical stuff, you know. Uh, no, 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 Donatus says that really we shouldn't use this particular, you know, syntactic form formation because it's awkward. Uh, and so, you know, we, we can see that even in, in these classrooms of, of, of the greats. And I suppose that's just a piece of the, 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 the two, what, poles of uh, literary education. The, the grand claims and the nitty-gritty. Mm -hmm. The problem is that we're not maybe as aware, nor were they as aware in the past, as we all might be about how the one can get in the way of the other, sure. um, and how focus on one pole sort of you know can obliterate the other pole. Right? Because we certainly have teachers who do the other thing, right? <laughs> who talk big picture, belle lettre, um, and critical theory without making sure that we know what's the subject and what's the verb. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, it's not as if, as I say, as, they're, as if they're in opposition, but they, there's a kind of tense rivalry between those two poles of pedagogy. Certainly. Yeah. Certainly, yeah. Yeah, as you say, something that permeates teaching mm -hmm. today. And I feel striking a balance between them is a tricky art, but yes. obviously what you strive for. Um, and I, I love this idea of uh, Servius throughout the ages. Mm -hmm. You mentioned with Guarino, but also at the panel, you, well, you also mentioned Austin just yeah. now. And then you talked about um, Henry Plantagenet. Yes, well. sure. Yeah. Uh, reading Virgil through mm -hmm. Servius, but also with that added layer of Geoffrey of Monmouth. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, one real change in study of, of especially epic literature, mm -hmm. um, is some vague sense that people really did have in the past of encountering an ancestry. Uh, so when, you know, obviously, when the Emperor Augustus threw his you know, sort of master of the revels through Mycenaeus, you know, picks up on this, this kid Virgil who's written this really good dialogue of shepherds, right? And we're hearing about him now and then wrote a kind of semi-farming treatise. Um, you know, so it get, gets to Augustus's ears and he says, I, I, you know, I want a much bigger poem and I want that about what he saw as his genealogical past, right? This was not just a great story of heroism and tragedy and loss. Mm -hmm. It was also a kind of prehistory for the Rome he, Augustus, was trying to build. So it was something very immediate at that moment. This is gonna undergird this whole new project I have of empire and, um, and a kind of rewriting of history, which he also did. Um, but it didn't end with Augustus, clearly then, later emperors had that same sense. And I think Rome generally, Rome, and, and I mean kind of broad Rome, would have a sense that this is also, it's, it's the prehistory of all of us insofar as we really identify with Rome. Um, this is, you know, not, in, in the case of Augustus, he was making an argument about genealogy. And actually then, so were the British kings. Mm -hmm. right? Because Geoffrey of Monmouth, just about the time that a Henry Plantagenet is learning his his Latin, or, or very little before. So, best 
date we have for Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain is around 1138. So it's not long after that that young Henry would have been getting educated. And picking up on hints, pretty widespread hints, earlier in a much less formed historical tradition, Geoffrey of Monmouth makes up a wonderful, wholly convincing, largely fictive history, right? where he says, in a way, he answers the question, how does Britain get its name? And he said, well, there's this, you know, depending on which version, grandson or great-grandson of uh, Aeneas, and he makes a, a tragic mistake. Uh, he's out hunting with his father, and he accidentally shoots his father, and everybody understands that this is not his fault, it wasn't intentional, but he still has to be put into exile because you can't, you know, he's, this sort of horrible taboo has been transgressed. So he takes off with a shipload of people, and they wander around, various stories ensue, but they end up on this beautiful island, uh, unpopular, barely populated island, uh, and he names it after himself, and his name is Brutus. So he found Britain. I see. Yeah. Um, and there are a few giants around, and they have to kill them off, but otherwise it's just this pristine, beautiful land, and he establishes his own nation. And those are thought to be uh, or claimed to be the ancestors of the Celts, of the you know the Aboriginal peoples of England before the waves of of Roman and then Norman conquest. Mm -hmm. Now, just how they jump from Celtic Celtic ancestry to having a connection to the Plantagenets is always left a little bit fuzzy because after all, those folks aren't English at all, right? They're Normans. Right. Yeah. That they still and there there are various uh, ways of making that happen, or at least making a kind of connection uh, in the interim plot between being exiled from Rome or from Latium and getting to England. Um, uh, Brutus is said and his cohort to have passed through what becomes Normandy, mm -hmm. so or nearby. So there's at least a kind of geographical connection there. Anyway, these people were the, the, the sort of a royal reader, sort of in the model of Augustus, would have thought of himself as reading a piece again, maybe not of his immediate genealogical antecedents but of his geographical antecedents, mm -hmm. right? I now am king, or I have ambitions to be king, of um, a people founded by Trojan exiles. And that, that it's, there you're still thinking about a kind of ancestry, at least of, as I say, of geography, or maybe even of power, because there's another powerful tradition that goes through the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, arguably even later, that power always moves, always and inexorably moves westward. There's this sort of notion of, of um, a double translatio. It's called the translatio studii, that learning moves westward from Greece to Rome to Europe, um, and that power also moves westward and that Trojan power moved into Greece, Greek power moved into Rome, Rome declined and Western Europe grew up after it. And that shows up even in 19th century America. 
-hmm. and the concept of manifest destiny. Yes. Right? So this political no notion that America is meant to occupy the entire continent. The people were really arguing over the period. Mm -hmm. And one of the sort of backgrounds to that is this notion of manifest destiny. I mean, sort of, of, of Wester, the kind of westering of power and the mm -hmm. westering of culture. Um, and of a kind of, um, what, revival of what had become a decadent culture. So at the same time that they admire Greek learning, a Greek culture, you know, the Romans also sort of thought that the Greeks had become sissies. Um, and, you know, there's a good reason that power has moved to us. You know, we'll go and get our, our kind of finishing school in Greece, but come on. Know, we're the better fighters, <laughs> and there, and that that sense of a kind of of decadence of the prior culture that needs to be then revived and and maybe even revalidated by the new rising culture goes along with this, and certainly that was true of revolutionary and nineteenth-century America that somehow they were going to take what was best from Europe and kind of revalidate it, and the classical. At least the kind of epic tradition of Troy and Rome comes with that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I um, am seeing kind of maybe a constellation or several threads, this idea of canon in literature and in language, but also transferred in an interesting way to genealogy and empire mm -hmm. yeah. um, power. Rome sort of appearing and dancing around all of these places. Yeah. And I mean, it's just fascinating to me how um, a book that, you know, uh, is ostensibly in on things from very early from the classical period mm -hmm. has all of these far reaching tendrils, Manifest Destiny, um, Austin, you reading mm -hmm. Austin at Oberlin, yeah. you know, not let alone um, Henry de Plantagenet and Guarino Dover, da Da Verona. Da Verona. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to... Verona and Ferrara were mixing in my head. Yeah. Um, it's just... It's really quite mm -hmm. amazing. And so, yeah, I'm just very interested to see how James's book will impact future yeah. scholarly work, not only in classics, but also in other yeah. periods. And arguably, that sense of, of power moving westward is still lurking in our thinking today, because where do we see power moving now? Where do you go west after you hit California? Right. China. Yeah, exactly. China. And there's a, a real, I think, widespread anxiety in at least political and economic America that it's happening. Right. Um, and certainly we have a huge discourse of a kind of imperial China you know, with their various their new trade agreements and that we're lapsing a little bit. Have we become decadent? <laughs> very, very interesting. Um, Zetzel's book is certainly going to do a more local, but also very important uh, service to scholarship. Just the, the kind of economy and clarity of what he does in the book. It's, it's, um, it, 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 it's a quick read. It's very, very dense. Um, but he just unpacks stuff that has been enormously confusing. That, that very vexed relationship between Servius and his predecessors that I talked to. Mm -hmm. I can now summarize that fairly effectively because <laughs> I've now reread Zetzel. And I think I said at the, the meeting that, that I, was, I desperately wished that the me of about 30 years mm -hmm. ago had that book because it's an enormously confusing relationship. This sort of massive late antique commentary 
almost none of which we have in late antique copies, almost all of which descends through copies made circa 900 and later, a very few, a very, very few copies a little bit earlier, and usually descending to us in massive confusion mm -hmm. because uh, another interesting point that Setzel makes, uh, takes up is that while they established classical text, this sort of new canon, as something that needed to be treated very carefully textually, mm -hmm. right? and they were interested in things like textual tradition, transmission, uh, um, the editing of text, the, the works they themselves produced were not thought of as having any particular authority or even any particular uh, internal coherence. And so people would, you know, if you're writing out, you're a ninth century copyist or a ninth century schoolmaster, and you are copying out or lecturing on commentaries, you pull a chunk from here and a chunk from here and a chunk from here, and there are no footnotes. <laughs> so uh, what we get in some of these ninth century manuscripts is just a massive, confusing body of commentary around the margins of the text. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to work out what's what. And Setzel sets out with, I think, remarkable clarity. And I am convinced by his every claim, um, just what these relationships are. And just to help us understand that is going to be enormously important, um, just in terms of, of people making a renewed use of these late classical materials. We've all known it's there. We have this vague sense that, well, if you're interested in Latin grammar, you need to get some control of Donatus and of Priscian. Um, if you're interested in commentaries, you need to work through, say, Virgil commentaries, at least you need to deal with Servius. <clears throat> but it's all very well knowing it's there, but if, if, it's, if, if your understanding of it is as vague and cloudy as the material itself, you're not going to use it. And we can actually use this stuff now uh, in ways. Um, the book is also a testimony to what we have gained from digitization. Right. Because Zetzel moves, uh, and, and not just in terms of manuscripts, although that's a very important piece. Nobody prior to Zetzel makes reference to manuscripts in the ways that he does. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a book that overlaps Zetzel to some degree by another very great Latinist, Robert Castor. Um, they know each other and have worked together for a long time. Um, and uh, and but but Castor's book, which is probably about mm, twenty five years old, maybe so, mm -hmm. in terms of classicism, pretty recent. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't think ever even acknowledges that manuscripts exist for the most part. Right? Mm -hmm. Whereas Zetzel is is sensitive always, even if he's not for his own purposes going back and working directly with them. He's aware of these the kind of the physicality, the bodied quality of transmission. So that, that comes into the geographical range we've talked about, comes, but it comes in a much more immediate way through the manuscripts that, that he mentions. All of that is only possible today because of what's happened really within the last 15 years. Um, and the digitization of manuscripts. Increasingly now, though, uh, he, he can also write the book that he writes because of the digitization of um, uh, just reference materials, right? Mm -hmm. Especially to the extent that we are now digitizing them at uh, a searchable level mm -hmm. of resolution. So you don't, 
in fact, have to read word through word for word through the, you know, the volumes and volumes and volumes of Kyle's Grammaticus Latina, Latini. Um, rather, you can search, right? Right. So, uh, and it's very, very interesting to, to witness um, a very senior scholar, you know, James Etzel is not in his first youth, um, making the most up-to-date use of, of very sophisticated digital resources and, and not just using them in a kind of, as a kind of practical armature. He's also letting them, what, drive his scholarly address forward. He's doing stuff with the material mm -hmm. that one wouldn't have thought to do 15 years ago. Right. It's fantastic. Yeah, a, a book not only useful in many different ways, but also for showing us how to use some of these digital materials. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, in fact, I I am already using just his <laughs> list of abbreviations at the beginning of the book because another again another kind of scholarly service he does is that when he gives you you know just uses a, an abbreviation at the in the sigla at the beginning of the book, mm -hmm. um, he also tells you where it's digitized. Mm -hmm. So instead of going off to the reference room and you know pulling out Kyle's editions of the of the Latin grammarians, I now know, you know, that there's a much faster and in fact much more effective way to get at that material. Right. Yeah. yeah. You can look at it on the screen and make it larger yeah. or smaller. Exactly. Well, uh, well, that for manuscripts, as you know, yeah. is a huge, huge benefit. My heavens. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I know that I'll be returning to this book for my own work, I'm sure, in I the bet. future. And um, thank you so much for speaking Pleasure. with me about it. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast, celebrating James Zetzel's book, Critics, Compilers, and Commentators, An Introduction to Roman Philology, 200 BCE to 800 CE. I hope you'll join us next year for our fourth season of the new books at the Heyman Center panel podcast series. From Columbia University Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky.